The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by Evan Stevens. He is a singer, songwriter, record producer, a painter. He is a very special case. Some of the songs Evan Stevens wrote, I just love. I'm going to name a few of my favorites. I Love a Rainy Night, Driving My Life Away, both of those sung by Eddie Rabbit. When You're in Love with a Beautiful Woman, Dr. Hook. Love Will Turn You Around, Kenny Rogers. I could keep on going, and I'm just going to tell you about some of the artists who have recorded Evan Stevens' work. It's a long list. We won't tell you all of them, but just to name a few, we have Joe Cocker, Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw, Shel Silverstein, Tom Jones. It's a long, long list. Even Stevens, thank you very much for joining us. Well, you bet, Paul. I don't, I don't know if I'm a special case, but I know I'm a case. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you have someone who writes for such an eclectic list, I mean, I didn't get into the whole list, but for someone to have written a song, songs, I should say, that have been recorded by everyone from Julio Iglesias to Glenn Campbell and Brenda Lee. I mean, it's just, it's a lot of diversity. Johnny Mathis. I mean, I would say that that's pretty interesting. Well, you know, it it surprises me, too, when I read that list, because it doesn't seem possible. (laughs) But I, I guess I'm just lucky. I've always said that I was pretty lucky. So for all those people who record my songs, it's really a big gift and, uh, it's over the years, I guess it just accumulated to a, a really nice list of some really good good singers, you know. And a lot of accolades, a lot of awards. I mean, an unprecedented, I think it was 55 BMI songwriting recognitions. Yes, yeah, that's true. And of course, induction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. That was wonderful when that happened. I, I really, really got a thrill out of that. It's interesting. You prefer writing to being a performer. I do. I I, I came to Nashville with the intentions of being a, a recording artist and a songwriter, and I turned down a few things. Uh, actually, uh, Ray Stevens, he was interested in, in me for a while. When I first got to town, when I was there a few years, uh, I got to know Ray and uh, worked with him on some demos and stuff, and but he had not had a hit for a while as an artist, and uh, he said, look, I, I like your songs, but I can't really take the time to produce anybody. I'm trying to produce some records on myself that are hits again. He says, but you're welcome. I would love to have you as a writer, but uh, I can't produce you. And I said, well, I, I really want to hold out for that. So I did, and then I met Jim Malloy, and he wanted to produce me too. So I'm glad I did it. I tried it, but then I didn't like it. I went on the road promoting an album that I made for Electra Asylum Records. I wasn't happy. I wasn't writing songs. I was traveling around with uh, radio uh, representatives from the label and, and in strange towns. And uh, it just wasn't my life. I just didn't like it. So I called, one night I called the head of uh, Electra Asylum from a phone in my room in New York, New York uh, somewhere. And I said, look, uh, you don't have that much money in me, and I really don't like this life. I'd like to just go back to being a songwriter. What do you? And he says, I never have had this call before, <laughs> <laughs> which didn't surprise me. But uh, I really felt that way. And as soon as I hung, he said, okay, 
I understand, and I was writing some songs for that label for other people that were being hit, so I guess that was one of the reasons he was so uh, uh, cooperative on it. But um, So I hung up the phone, and it felt like a 100-pound weight went off my shoulders, and I was so happy. And I'm glad I tried it because it got it out of my system, and I probably would have always wondered about it, you know, if I hadn't tried it. But I was so happy to just go on back to be a songwriter again. I think most stories are best from the beginning. Can you paint a picture with words about what your early days were like and where you were? In Nashville, you mean? No, before that, taking us back to Ohio. Well, I was the son of a preacher, and he was a Methodist minister for 10 years, my father, Floyd, and uh, then he switched to Baptist for about 10 years. He was ordained in that also. And then he didn't like organized religion and committees and people that were affluent in the church making all the decisions for the whole church and and that kind of stuff and so then he then he uh became a, a church of christ minister for a while and then a pentecostal and then he finally bought a little theater in a small town in ohio called DeGraff, and he he and my sister started a church and he just preached directly out of the bible so that was kind of the way i grew up during that time and I was dabbling in art, and I wanted to go to be an artist. But uh, then Uncle Sam called. It was during Vietnam, and I was going to be drafted. So I uh, enlisted in the Coast Guard. And now if you were drafted, you could be in for two years possibly, but a lot of people got extended against their will during that, that thing. And uh, But in the Coast Guard, you had to go in for four years to enlist. So I did that, and I became a Morse code operator and was transferred uh, to San Francisco radio station on a hill, on a mountain, kind of overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. And then uh, I transferred after that to Monterey, Carmel, Monterey, California, and I was a uh, uh, radio man in charge down there at a lifeboat station. So I had a quite a different kind of uh, experience, and uh, I, I started writing songs when I was in California, and making up on those late-night radio watches. I'd make up lyrics and stuff and kind of thought I was a songwriter, kind of, but not a professional songwriter. I I played in some clubs, and I played folk songs that other people had written and then threw in a few of my own, and it just kind of gradually become become, uh, what I thought I might be able to do, you know. Now, you were just talking about coming up with these lyrics late at night, how did you learn to write songs? How did you go from that to being able to write a song from beginning to end? Well, you know, about a couple of years ago, I found some cassettes that I had taken and played for people, some producers in those early days, and I thought I was really great then. And they turned down the songs when I'd pitch them to, like, George Jones, producer, or people that I could get in to see. And I, I've actually stormed out of some offices during those days thinking they were crazy, that they didn't take them. And I listened to these tapes a few years ago, and I go, oh, my gosh, I was, they weren't even close, you know. These, and I thought they were. I thought they were great songs, and they really weren't songs that would, would make it. And uh, I, I guess it's a kind of blind ego in a way, you know. And, but I knew that I had to learn the craft. There's a craft to it. And it's hard to define what that is or explain what that craft is. It's just <laughs> when people ask me, how do you write a, a hit song? I go, you write a song and you take everything that sucks out of it. <laughs> and that's, that's the key. 
Very interesting. Yeah. Now, you were mentioning a moment ago about your father and him being a pastor. I'm curious to know, was gospel music ever an influence on you? Well, it was, because my father and my sister had a gospel group called the, the uh, Gospel Balladeers, and they made an album, and they traveled a little bit in Ohio and stuff and played, and so it was, I was around it all the time. And actually, my father got involved with, and my sister got involved with uh, having courses in Christian music that they uh, made and and sent to uh, prisoners in prisons, and called the Victory Institute, and so that was watching that all go on too when I was a kid and and uh, they ended up uh, actually giving the Oak Ridge the Oak Ridge boys got involved with that that uh, thing they were doing and and my dad gave uh, Dwayne Allen uh, a plaque on the Grand Old Opry stage when I was first in Nashville and I got to meet the Oak Ridge boys through that and uh, so so yeah gospel music was always around and my parents were involved in it also what songwriters would you say have had the biggest influence on you? Well, the Beatles, really. I was really big into the Beatles, and I, I really loved their songs. On a personal level, Shel Silverstein was a friend of mine. I, we, I picked him up hitchhiking one day on Music Row in Nashville. Just out of the blue, I saw him walking along and said, Hey, Shel, will you? I recognized him, and I said, Hey, Shel, would you like a ride? And he goes, he looked at me and studied me and looked in my truck. He goes, yeah. And uh, we ended up writing five songs that day, and three of those songs got recorded by major artists. And we became friends, longtime friends. And uh, he was uh, one of probably the most creative person I've ever met. He, he didn't watch TV. He didn't go to movies. He didn't do anything but create things. And uh, that was very inspiring to me. And I was kind of that way myself. I I really was consumed with learning how to do it and pursuing it, you know. It seems like there's two groups of people when it comes to Shel Silverstein. There's the people who know him from the books they grew up with, the children's books. Yeah. And then there's the music fans who know, you know, like Johnny Cash's A Boy Named Sue. I would love to know what Shel Silverstein was like to be around. What was he like just on a personal level? He was a very funny person, actually. You know, he had a look that was kind of looked devilish in a way, you know, and his bald head and his beard and everything. It, he was a sweet person. He really was. And but and he was always laughing and having a good time. He was he was a very interesting man. Uh, uh, he he. I would tell him, I'd say, look, I got this idea for a drawing, but I've tried to make it happen, and I can't do it as well as I envision it. And he would draw it for me, and I've got drawings by him that he did that way. And he was just very giving that way and, and very creative. And he was very, he, he inspired you to be around because he was so into writing songs and, and so good at it. I know that this question is maybe a hard question to answer and be humble at the same time, but <laughs> I'm curious because so many of these songs that you've written have endured. They are still heard on the radio. I love a rainy night. You could start singing that and someone would probably sing along with you. Why do you think that your songs have endured? You know, that's, 
that's really a good question. I've really been fortunate that way. It, it really amazes me. I love Rainy Night. Just uh, recently was at BMI, went in the six million airplays category, which is really, really a lot. Astounding. <laughs> if you get a millionaire award, that's one million airplays. And when it reaches six, you're just, your mind is kind of boggled by it, you know. And, and I have to say, there's, when I play, I play a lot live out at different things, festivals and at private things. And uh, everybody knows I love Rainy Night, for instance, and uh, Beautiful Woman. They know that well, well and they sing along. And, and that's that's really a hoot when people sing along to your songs. I mean, that's probably the greatest compliment you can have as a writer, you know. It's, it's a wonderful feeling. I don't know why. I think... Uh, a love rainy night. If you think about it, the melody of that is very childish, and I think that's something that appeals to people on a gut level. You know, da 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 da. It's very childish in a way. So I guess maybe that's the lure of that song in some way, because it's easy to learn. You don't even have to try to learn it, because it's repetitious and so forth. So there, are, I guess there's elements that make it that way that uh, people remember them and and. Uh, enjoy singing them i guess yeah you've written with so many talented songwriters already you've mentioned shell silverstein but you've written with some really great ones a lot of them are also inductees of the nashville songwriters hall of fame who blew you away when you were writing with them well eddie rabbit and i wrote over 900 songs together and i mean he was very good very good, very good, and we had wonderful times doing it. We spent, well, we spent a lifetime together. Actually, we we actually he he one time rented a a side of a a duplex, and when the other side came open, I got that. And we put an intercom in between them so that we could write <laughs> when we were in our separate duplexes together, and uh, we we just really enjoyed writing. So he was very inspiring, uh, and uh, and vice versa. I think we just had a great connection. I really liked writing with Shell. I wrote uh, quite a few songs with Shell over the years. He was real easy and fun to write with. And uh, Wynn Varble, I don't know if you know him, but he wrote uh, Waiting on a Woman and, and a bunch of great songs. He's just a funny person, and I just love being around him. Uh, so there's a lot of my do for uh, Sean Camp lately I've been writing with, and he's just such a talented songwriter and musician. It's just a hoot. And when you're writing to hear fantastic playing going on too, so that you sounds like a record when you're writing it, you know, and that's, that's a inspiring. So there's some of the people who have you not written with, and this could be anybody. I mean, anybody alive, I guess I could say, who have you not written with that you would like to? I'd love to write with Paul McCartney. I would, that would be a dream come true and would really be a dream come true. I've gotten to write with some great, some great songwriters, Mac Davis and Lamont Dozier and uh, a whole bunch of different people. But Paul McCartney probably would be the, the ultimate. I'm hoping you can tell us about your first years in Music City. When you first came to Nashville, was that an intimidating thing to do? Was it exciting? What was that like? Well, you know what was great about it was that country music, uh, the, the town of Nashville was changing pretty dramatically, and I didn't know that when I came. 
but I had lived in California before that, and I had bought country music, kind of. I, Nashville Skyline by Bob Dylan, and I knew Christopherson's songs because he was on albums that were pop albums, kind of like Janis Joplin and different things, because I was really into pop music or, or into rock music, whatever, in the San Francisco area when I was out there. And so when I came to Nashville... A big transition was happening from real honky-tonky type music to a little more lyrically uh, interesting to me, like Help Me Make It Through the Night and uh, Sunday Morning Coming Down by Christopherson and uh, Mickey Newberry, I mean, the things he wrote. And uh, there were people like that in town that were really getting popular. And I thought, when I got to Nashville, I didn't come to Nashville to be a writer. I came down to visit an uncle who was just on the weekend, and I ended up staying because I, I thought, man, I, I, I could probably get into that side of writing country music. I didn't, I wasn't inclined to write honky tonk music. I felt, and it wasn't something I loved. But that other end of it that was coming into being right there when I was get, getting in Nashville, it was interesting to me. And I thought maybe I could fit in with that and and add something to it. You know, frequently success is something that just doesn't happen overnight. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what the struggle was like. Well, I slept in my Jeep for over a year. Wow. And that was, I was broke most of the time for about three years. I, I It was it was ironic. Uh, the first night I was in town, my uncle was playing downtown at a, a bar called the Demon's Den with a band. They were a cover band, and he played drums, and that's who I was visiting. And when they were closing down the the, uh, the club at 2 o'clock in the morning, there was a guitar sitting back by the bathroom, and I was playing one of my so- kind of a folk songs that I'd written and just passing time. And a guy walked by, and he said, hey, that song would be perfect for my daughter to record. And, it, and the guy was Webb Pierce, who was a big country star in the 50s. He had like 50 number one records. I mean, he was huge. And I said, really? And he goes, would you like me to publish that song? And I said, yeah. I ended up in his office the first night I was in town at 3 in the morning signing a publishing deal on that song and playing my song into a tape recorder. I called all my friends in California and said, come on down to Nashville, this is easy. And that ended up not ever happening at all. But I had a, and when I was in Ohio after the Coast Guard, I drove down to Nashville that night and I had previously enrolled in art school at the Dayton Art Institute to be a graphic artist. That's what I was going to do. And I was supposed to go start in two weeks. And uh, that night in Nashville made me, that promise, that dream, you know, made me stay. And I blew off art school and stayed in Nashville, didn't go home. And I I was broke and uh, I didn't get a song recorded for almost three years. So I was here for a while before anything really happened. But I learned and I learned the business, and I learned the craft of writing more, and uh, wrote tons of songs until I actually started getting pretty good at it. I think so. So it was not uh, an overnight thing, of course, and I don't think it is for anybody really. So, what do you credit this perseverance with? Well, it was fun. I was having a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed learning it and trying to top myself and do something. Uh, there was so such great songs going on at that time that were hits, and I really liked them. And I actually, uh, Help Me Make It Through the Night was a big hit while I was here 
when I first got to Nashville, and and I actually ended up my mentor was the guy who produced that, a guy named Jim Malloy that I met like about three years down the line. He and I, I met him one day, and the next day we started a publishing company together, and he was the guy that really got me going in in country music, and uh, and I ended up Sammy Smith who did help me make it through the night Grammy winning song that she recorded. I ended up opening shows for her later down the line and become a, a great friend of hers. And she recorded like over a dozen of my songs on her albums and just things kind of, <clears throat> if you're lucky and persevere, things just kind of start happening and they, they kind of steamroll into other, other things, you know, cause everybody knows each other down here pretty much, at least in those days they did. And one person will introduce you to another and, things happen. It's uh, pretty magic that way. I'm hoping you can tell us about the significance of the song, I'm In For Stormy Weather. Yeah, that was the first recording I ever had by Sammy Smith. I was just trying to write uh, about breaking up, a song about breaking up, and uh, there's a funny story about that. I, <laughs> I, w- I was invited to a party out in the country when I had that that song had just been recorded and released on an album by Sammy Smith and and uh it was a producer of Bob Montgomery was his name. He had a party out and I don't know why I was invited. Uh, I can't remember how I even got there for what reason because I didn't know him, but uh it was a bunch of uh, uh record people and so forth out there and uh it was in a big barn that he had turned into a house and and I noticed while I, w- I was talking to this girl and kind of flirting with her, and I noticed that Sammy's new album was sitting by the record player that was there, and I, I serendipitously, or I mean, uh, secretly put the album on and was talking with her, and she goes, oh, I love Sammy Smith when the album came on. She, she goes, she, she's my favorite. And my song, uh, when it came on, I thought, oh, this is great. And so my song came on and played, and and she said, while it was playing, she goes, you know, I love Sammy Smith, but why she ever cut that piece of shit, I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a that was an ego deflator, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and you can beat that if you want. <laughs> now, when she said that, did you oh. did you tell her, Hey, that's my song? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I was too embarrassed. I was going, Oh my lord, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> There have been so many recording artists who have covered an Even Stevens song. This, again, is probably a difficult one. Who did the best job? Who do you think did the best interpretation of something that you wrote? Oh, that is that's a hard one, I'll tell you. Well, Eddie Rabbit did fantastic job on things I co-wrote with him all the time, and he actually wanted to record when I wrote When You're In Love With A Beautiful Woman. He wanted to record that song, and I'd already promised it to Dr. Hook, and I'm sure he would have done a great job on it, too, because he was, and he was very hot at the time. Uh, it would have probably been a hit for him, too. I see. Well, Conway Twitty did Crazy In Love really great, I thought. And I thought uh, Kim Carnes did a very good job on it, too. There, a lot of people recorded that song. It's probably my most recorded song. Uh, let's see. Let me think here. Hmm. Sammy always did. Uh, I had a song called Days It In and Why that was a 
I think it went in the top 30 with her that I really thought was a wonderful cut with her, she, the way she sang it. And, of course, Kenny Rogers' Love Will Turn You Around is a fantastic job the way he sang it, but he is so good. It's unreal. And working with him was just a pleasure and a half. I mean, it was just fantastic. And he wrote, I mean, he also did a Crazy in Love. Uh, Kim Carnes was a friend of his, and she had the first cut of that, really, that was on the air and was an adult contemporary hit. And then she sang that, that song at his one of his weddings. <laughs> I'll say one of his weddings. I don't know which one. And that, and then he wanted to record it after she sang that at his wedding. So that, that he did a great job on both those songs. What do you think about Nashville today? Well, I think it's very competitive. There's so many people that are songwriters in town. I mean, it's just a flood of songwriters in town. It really is. Unlike the earlier days, I mean, I guess at the time it seemed like there was a lot of songwriters, but it's it's so famous. I think mainly from uh, the Nashville TV show, it got so popular, the town itself, and I think a lot of people come here for that because of that. That's why they had it in their brain, and the town is so exciting. I mean, it's 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 a pain in a lot of ways, traffic wise, and the amount of people that are here, but it's it's just growing like leaps and bounds it's just getting huge this town traffic i don't even leave if i I live about an hour out of nashville and when i'm in town if i don't get out of town by three o'clock i don't even try because the traffic is backed up for till 6 30 so uh, i just stay in town and do things but and that never was the case that's how crowded it's gotten here songwriter wise uh it's the same you know there are people uh, you know yeah what you have to realize when you're a songwriter is you have your time and it fades a bit. The uh, action you get and other people come up just like uh, just like radio. You know, people like songs and then they move on to other songs, and you have to accept that. Uh, that's the normal way it goes. But I've been lucky. I've had cuts by Kenny Chesney and Tim McGraw and and other contemporary people, and I've been l- lucky that way too. So I'm still getting uh, action on my songs. But I, I was hot for a while, you know, a pretty good long time, probably more longer than most people were. So I, I never feel slighted about it. I'm, I feel very fortunate as a songwriter in this town. Do you still paint? I do. Actually, I paint more than ever right now. Hmm. Yeah. What kind of stuff do you paint? Well, I paint. Uh, <laughs> I paint. A lot of different things. Right now I'm doing, (laughs) this is going to sound very strange, but I'm doing a series called the Bobber Series. And you know what fishing bobbers look like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds crazy, but it's bobbers doing human things. (laughs) And (laughs) uh, I'm doing one right now where it's from the back of an auditorium and the seats are filled with the bobbers. And the lights are on an empty stage, and it's waiting for Bobber Seeger to come on. <laughs> it is. It's it's a very strange thing. I talk, it's really hard to explain. You have to see it. It's tongue in cheek, and I've done about eight so far of the series. And uh, actually, this art gallery down in Nashville is going to run a, a show for me when I get maybe a dozen done. So because they've seen some of it and they want to show it, so. <laughs> But I paint realism, too. I paint uh, scenes, and I, p- I paint a lot of different kind of things. I, I draw, too, uh, pen and inks. I've always been interested in that. I still will. 
Shel Silverstein, you know, to did that. And he uh, he showed me a lot of uh, tricks that I I do with pen and inks because he was fantastic at that. As we mentioned at the beginning, you're also a producer. That's true. We had as a guest on this show Engelbert Humperdinck. I think he's yeah. one of the just great singers of our yeah. time. And uh, I also, I found him to be a really likable, very nice guy. Wasn't he? Yeah. He yes. What was it like producing Engelbert Humperdinck? I'll tell you, it was fantastic. When he when he opened his mouth to sing, it was magic coming out of it. He has the greatest voice, and it's so rich and present. And he, and he was really fun to work with, too. He's a very funny guy, actually. I, it's funny how I met him. Uh, my uncle, my mother's brother, Jack, lives in Utah. And the first guy that Engelbert Humperdinck met when he got to the United States was my uncle on a, on a golf course somewhere. And they became fast friends. And that's really how I met Engelbert and ended up producing him. Was uh, Over the years, my uncle Jack would call me and he'd say, Hey, why don't you give me some songs and I'll play them for Engelbert for you. And years and years of that went on, and I never did it because I thought it was kind of cheesy to pitch songs to him that way. And then when I wrote When You're In Love With A Beautiful Woman, I thought, now this song would be a good song for Engelbert. So I called my Uncle Jack and I said, I got one, I'll send it to you. He said, no, no, get on an airplane and come out and meet Engelbert, play it for him. And that's how I met him. I went out there. And what what is interesting, I think, is that I... I, I flew out there on an overnight flight, and my Uncle Jack picked me up at the airport, and we went to the Beverly Hills Hotel, and, and Engelbert showed up, and and uh, we went to a pub and played some darts and talked and everything, and then we went out to his house, and it was this Jane Mansfield's old mansion, and it was in between Cher's mansion and Rod Stewart's mansion, and it was just unbelievable, this place, 13 bathrooms, the size of it, it was he had George Gershwin's grand piano in his living room and a fountain that the water flowed over the fountain down in a hole, down a river. You could watch over out these windows into a heart-shaped pool of uh, Jane Mansfield's. And it was unreal. And after been there a, a couple hours, he says, I hear you've got a song for me. I said, yeah, I have a reel-to-reel tape of this new song I've got. I think it'd be good for you. He says, well, let's go down to my rec room. I just put in a $30,000 sound system. Went down there. He put my reel-to-reel tape on his player and hit the button. And after about three seconds, it ate my tape. And I said, your machine ate my tape. He says, your, your tape's ruining my machine. And he never did hear my song. And I didn't have a guitar, and he didn't. So I didn't get to play it for him. And I went back home to Nashville the next day, kind of depressed that I didn't get to play it for him. I told him I'd probably send him a tape. And uh, when I got back to town, Shel Silverstein came by the studio. I was working in the next day, working on that song, actually. And he said, uh, you mind if I... He says, I I always write everything Dr. Hook does, but I just played them all the new songs for I thought would be good for their new album. And they said they want to try something new. And he says, you mind if I bring their producer by? Because uh, I think you got the kind of songs they might want. And uh, he came by and heard When You're In Love With A Beautiful Woman, and that's how that song got recorded. So <laughs> that's how I met Engelbert. So many, many months passed, maybe a year, and he called me, Engelbert called me one day and said, uh, I just did an album that 
that I'm not really happy with for Epic. He says, I, I'd like to do some more songs of yours, uh, do some songs of yours. Would you send me some? So I sent him five songs, and he called me back. He says, man, I love every one of those songs. Why don't we do a whole album? And I said, well, what Epic think of that? And he says, I don't care what Epic thinks of it. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it myself as we go in the studio. And uh, so I said, okay. So I found more songs for him. He came to town, and David Malloy and I had just built Emerald Studio, and we were, had this fantastic studio we built in Nashville. It was when it, it won Studio of the Year for like 10 or 12 years in a row. And we had just got it open when Engelbert sh- showed up, and the first album cut there was produced on Engelbert there, and it was so gr- fun and so great. Uh, he, was, he was such a great singer, he just and great to be around, too. This is probably a question you're tired of answering, but I just have to for the benefit of our listeners. What is the origin of your name, Even Stevens? What inspired that? Well, my last name really is Stevens. Right. And uh, when I was in the Coast Guard and I was a Morse code operator, when you're on the air sending Morse code, usually your initials of your first and last name is your handle, they call it, where somebody they'll they'll send you Morse code and say your initials and you'll recognize them your initials and it's your handle or that's how they talk to you find you and since my last name was Stevens they they started sending even as (laughs) my handle so when I got into music I thought that was a good name (laughs) it's very catchy well, you know, I think I think it helped me because I think when I was in, first got to town, people thought I had people say, "Oh, I've heard about you. I've heard of you." And I think they didn't. They just didn't knew that that phrase. You know, makes us even, Stevens. You know, <laughs> so I I think it helped in that way somewhat. You know, you know, Ray Stevens. Uh, it's funny. Ray Stevens' his real name is uh, Ray Ragsdale. And he changed it to Ray Stevens. And when I was working with Ray, he, I came in one day and he said, uh, no, even, he says, I think people are going to think you're my son or something. Maybe you should change your name. <laughs> so I came in the next day and I said, I've done it. I've changed it. He says, what? I said, it's even Ragsdale. <laughs> and he never brought it up. He never brought it up again. <laughs> nice. What is the best thing about being even Stevens? I mean, it's great to hear your songs on the radio. That's that's always a thrill. I guess that would be about the best thing going because of what I do. You know, it's just such a hoot to hear songs of your own on the radio. It's it's magic time. You know, it's like you want to pull over the car and just sit there and listen, you know. Well, it's a hoot for us, too. You've written some really, really wonderful songs, and as I said, they have endured the compliment. Thank you for that. Anyone who wants some more information, you can go to evenstevensongwriter.com. I always like to end the interview by just giving the guest the stage. <laughs> just take the microphone. We have people listening in from all over. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, I'd say, you know, Life's a gift, and uh, if you have something you love to do, do it. And then chances are you'll make money doing it. I think that's the best thing you can do is 
something you love. And uh, if life's too short to do something you don't love, and if you have something you just are crazy about, there's probably a business that you can probably do with it. And I would really recommend it. I was lucky that I'd find something like that and uh, have some success in it. And I think, and I do know other people that have followed that same kind of pattern and and it worked out for them. And I think it's it doesn't matter what it is. If you love it, you'll do it well, which will mean you'll be successful at it. And I think that's real good advice for anybody. And uh, it's what I tell my sons. <laughs> and I think it's a good idea. Well said. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary hit songwriter, Even Stevens. Thank you so much. Well, Paul, I, I really appreciate you asking me to be on your show and uh, everyone out there uh, keep on rocking <laughs> <laughs> it's an honor until next time goodbye